air hockey, or billiards? What's your go-to table sport? <laughs> I've never once in my life been asked what is my go-to table sport. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we're really going to dig into the number of times you've been asked the questions and the this, this, or that's, there are a number of ones I'm really curious as to why you've heard them multiple times. <laughs> There's a fair point to be had there. It's just... I just imagine that that's like, what's your favorite table sport? Is like a really ill-advised way to try to break the ice with someone you think is cute. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. But I can see it happening more easily than some of our other questions. It's it's the it's the college freshman version of flirting. Yeah, okay, really, there there you go. You know. that, that's what it is. Question for so we're not flirting. We're just deciding which <laughs> which one we want to play. <laughs> <laughs> so question for you too. Did you guys have to play ping pong in uh like high school gym? Uh not in gym. We played uh pickleball, not ping pong. Okay, I'd never heard of pickleball until I got to college and I still don't quite understand what it is. So I'm it's, just gonna... it's <laughs> tennis with the wiffle ball. It's really that simple. That sounds awful. Yeah. Why not just play tennis? Cuz it's you can't really play tennis indoors safely. Uh... Okay, safely. That's a good clause. <laughs> I mean, people play squash. True. And that's dangerous as hell. Yeah, I mean, that, you're not wrong, but the rooms are also specially designed for squash. Regardless, that does bring us back up to the question, though. So Wait, so, but you didn't. Did you? No, uh, what I'm saying, none of us have yet. <laughs> it's like, it's a circle back around. Like, squash. Uh no, no, her question. Yeah. Ashley's question about did we play ping pong in gym? Oh, yeah. No, correct. You played no. pickleball. What about you, Kyle? Um, I uh, I don't think I did. I think we probably played like pickleball or something too. Okay. I don't remember playing ping pong much we, at all. We played ping pong. And the reason mm. I'm not going to choose ping pong is because I was actually okay at ping pong. For a time. Not that like we had a lot of opportunity. It was just a gym class. We used to have tournaments every year. Not like real tournaments. Just like within gym class. Everyone plays one another. And then you'd have, you know. And I was so close to winning one year. And then I forget exactly what happened. But I like just botched a game. And I was like, that's it. The scene of my ping pong career. So no no (laughs) ping pong for me is my point. I'm still bitter about that. Like very vague story that I just told. (laughs) Well, if you think that's bad. I so one of the reasons that ping pong popped up for me was because one of my college roommates in my freshman year of college and I would go down to the rec center and play ping pong all the time. Like that was just when we had nothing else to do once in a while, we would just go over and then we would play. And partway through the semester, we just started keeping a running tally of who was ahead in games overall. Mm -hmm. And the more the semester went on, the further and further behind I got. And it wasn't that I was bad. <laughs> he was just always a little bit better. Because like, it would be one of those things where it, was, it would be like, we'd go and play, and he'd win like five games, and I'd win three. Right? So I'd always be like two games down at the end of every night. So I would just keep going further and further in the hole. So I don't remember what the final tally was by the end of the, the year, but I, I was at least 60 games behind. Got it. So I don't know if that makes you feel any better, but... I mean, it does. I feel like it's the same kind of beef. <laughs> it, it's like the same kind of beef. Like, okay, I'm I'm not yeah. the only petty one on this podcast. <laughs> Except I don't really have a beef with it. It actually just makes me laugh and realize that I suck at pretty much any <laughs> variation of sport whatsoever. <laughs> oh, 
See, we, I've accepted it. This is my lot in life. I played, I played ping pong in college. I never was very particularly good at it. I grew up playing it with my grandfather. And so uh, my mom's dad would, like, they had a ping pong table in their basement. Mm-hmm. And that was just a thing that we did there. So, like, I would play just, it was, that's not my game. Like, mm-hmm. getting any kind of, like, English on the ping pong ball to get it to just curves, that's just not my speed. I can do it with a tennis racket. I can't do it with a ping pong yeah, paddle. I, I would get too excited and then just hit the ball too hard and not right. in a way that you want. <laughs> it would, like, overshoot the table and it would get frustrated. Mm. Um, so it just, Every I never time. could quite... My enthusiasm for the game was never at the appropriate level for the the density of the ball. It, it, the people who play that game super, super well, I'm convinced that they're airbenders because some of the things that happen, <laughs> the amount of like drop and or curvature that they get on mm-hmm. some of those shots is just... When how far back bonk. they stand to play. I know. I'm just like, how right? are you launching it that far at all? It has no weight. Right. <laughs> yeah, it it's it's wizardry. Yeah. Just yeah, no. Not my sport whatsoever. Oh, totally. Um that leaves us with billiards and air hockey. Air, air hockey. hockey. See if you'd said foosball. But you yeah. Didn't, so that would have been my choice as well. <laughs> oh. I, I hadn't actually thought of it. The first the first one that I was I was toying around with and I eliminated was darts. Because I decided that's a little like it started with billiards, darts, and then I was like, ah, there's not really another like pool hall sure. variant game, right? So then I I changed direction slightly. Fair enough. Didn't even think about foosball, admittedly. Billiards, I I I feel too much pressure to be cool about it, but I'm not good <laughs> enough. I'm not good enough to do anything cool. Right. I feel like there's this like performative pressure to be really good if you deign to pick up a, a cue. And I yeah. can't do that. So, and it's also disappointing because anytime you see, like, especially on a college campus, they're like, oh, we've got pool tables. It's like, great. So the cues are probably all dinged up. Right. Yep. There probably is chalk, but it'll be the wrong kind. Right. And like, Or it's so ground down that you can barely do anything with yeah, it. Yeah, it's like down to the backing <laughs> Yeah, because you got those people who just like chalk after every three seconds. They're mm-hmm. just sitting there like, Rubbing it on the queue the whole time. Yeah. The rack is missing. So you're like trying to hand assemble. Right. <laughs> Condense all these balls. Yeah. And like there's always one missing. Yeah. Or like there's an extra one that so you've two of the same and you're like, how did this happen? So it's always a disappointment. It's always a disappointment. But then if you go someplace yeah. where it's like they're serious about their pool, don't even step. It's just right. not worth it. It's not worth the fight. That is true. The pure shame. Yep. Yeah. That's fair. So not billiards, for me at least. I don't want to speak for any of it. So what that leaves you... With air air hockey. Air hockey. It, it, it allows me to have the aggression that I'd like to apply to table tennis. And there's really no... It's It would be hard to look stupid playing that game. More stupid, at least, than you already do. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's, like it's a very hard- arcade-esque game. Yeah. Like, it's hard to make yourself look a fool unless you just have a bad temper. Yeah. Yeah. 
you don't sound like you agree. No, I like, you know, I've seen you play air hockey. <laughs> you look idiotic. That is not what I said at all. <laughs> Nor did I imply such a thing. Do not impugn my honor with this statement. <laughs> okay, so you're choosing air hockey. I'm going to choose billiards because I like pool. Again, are you, are you good at it? I'm decent. Okay, well. I used to put, uh, aunt and uncle used to have a table. We had it at youth group. Uh, we had two in the dorm that I lived in in college. So like I've I've played a fair bit of pool. I can do a few fancier shots. Like I can shoot behind my back. I can do a few. Can you do the thing where you hop over another ball? Uh, maybe about one in eight times. Like that's a tough one. Learning to get really good about putting English on like pool balls is something that I did not spend enough time to do. Like if we were to have a house and just be like, let's put one in, I you would probably catch me sitting there just playing with that for hours, like and just doing things over and over and you over already again. You have enough hobbies. Mm. You don't need. A I pool do table. not need another hobby. That is correct. <laughs> Cause then I'll get into weighted pool cues and like, yeah, it, you'll want, uh, you'll want all of the best for the thing. And then you'll be the only one playing. It. Yeah. It, Cause frankly, I will not play. With Lord you. only knows. Like if we've learned anything, I get into a thing and I get into a thing and I want to pour all of myself into the thing. I know no chill when it comes to hobbies. Do <laughs> <laughs> any of us really? For this one specific one, I would like there to be some modicum of chill. <laughs> well kyle where does that leave you i i am actually going to land in the same place as you alan for very similar reasons actually my aunt and uncle also have one in their house still um so we play i'd play it over there every once in a while growing up and then um played that a little bit in college too i think i, I want to say it was when i was in college that i started really messing with it more like when i wasn't playing ping pong with my roommate i'd just go down there by myself and shoot around a little bit um and i did get pretty decent at hopping the ball for a while there and now i can't like the last couple times i've tried i haven't been able to manage it very well um but yeah i think i i really like that one i like the physics of that one um i've just never been particularly great at it and i find that my hard like my biggest challenge when it comes to billiards now is my depth perception is so funky like i i find that i have to take my glasses off like it's the one thing that i have to take my glasses off for because for whatever reason i just have such a hard time gauging the depth do you need bifocals are we there probably i had that i actually had bifocals when i was in like sixth grade really no gosh yes you must have been old man adorable goodness well they were they were like the no line like transition mm-hmm. bifocals oh, yeah, yeah. so you I couldn't even care. tell right <laughs> and thankfully my eyes self-corrected because it was so annoying and i hated it <laughs> but yeah that's probably a thing that's going to happen again later in life oh my goodness <sighs> so yep. what we've learned is that kyle brains alan talent ashley temper <laughs> Ha <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> so put us all together and we have Banner Hulk? Basically. <laughs> oh, goodness. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Hello, Matt Persans. This is episode 216 of the MinMax podcast. Hope this finds you well. Uh, we have got some email. I'm very excited. So we have received several emails and we've also had a voicemail. So instead of dedicating and doing like a full mailbag episode, what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to split out uh, the messages that we've got. And by all means, man percents keep filling the hopper. It's fun to have stuff to engage with and to kind of go through. But I am going to do us the honors this time. This is from Skip. Hey fam, here's my uh, email about Dune as promised. I have a lot of emotions wrapped up in Dune, not the story itself, though I am a fan, but about the physical book, or at least what I thought was Dune. I finally decided to tell that story. I'm going to link the uh, blog post that Skip actually did about this. I got a chance to prove it. It's really good. Uh, With regards to the story itself, I had a couple of observations about your discussion a few weeks ago. If I recall, part of the discussion was about Dune having some significantly pro- progressive themes, but still having a very, or still being very patriarchal in nature. While I'm guessing that Herbert was liberally minded, I believe his intent was to tackle other areas, not gender equality and feminism. I believe that Herb, that Frank Herbert did write Dune to address concerns about the environment and ecological issues. He studied and spoke on these issues a great deal. I also think his portrayal of the Fremen speaks to issues about indigenous peoples, how they are treated, and their connection to ecological well-being. I do know that Frank Herbert wrote Dune as a warning against charismatic and even messianic leaders. He is quoted as saying, I wrote the Dune series because I had this idea that charismatic leaders ought to come with a warning label on their forehead. May be dangerous to your own health. His son, Brian, also has written and spoken about Paul's tale as a warning. Uh, I'll link the Wikipedia article that uh, Skip links. I don't believe that Paul Atreides was the Kwisatz Haderach that the Bene Gesserit had planned for during their thousand generations of breeding. In the story, the Reverend Mother uh, Gaius Helen Mohayim chastises Jessica for having a male child. She was supposed to have a female child instead but instead gave Duke Leto a son. The sisterhood was trying to produce their Messiah, but it was supposed to be from the union of Jessica's daughter and Fate Ratha. Whatever they thought the Kwisatz Haderach was going to be, they were not expecting Paul Atreides. In story, Paul is seen as a messianic figure. From a meta perspective, I think Herbert writes him not necessarily as an anti-Christ figure, but ultimately as an anti-hero or false prophet messianic figure. In any interpretation, Paul Trades is written as a warning, not something to be revered. Not sure I got everything right there. I'm only, I've only read the novel about once and done some small amount of reading about the novel at that time. Thanks, Skip. He also sent a follow-up email with just uh, links to two different videos uh, of Herbert talking about the environment and charismatic leaders. I'll drop those in the show notes, too. Awesome. Thanks, Skip. I... But speaking for myself, I won't speak for my other my co-host, but I really appreciate your thoughts and your um your assessment of Dune. I think at least for me, 
it's it is obvious that he is addressing those issues in his work Definitely. and i'm not trying to suggest that um i'm not i'm not trying to suggest that those were lost i do think that there are authors that perhaps do a little bit better intersectionality and granted you know maybe that wasn't a conversation that was being had at the time but i think it could have been and there are authors even before him that were a little bit better at at that i don't think it's too much to ask to treat women like humans in writing um and as much as as much as i think he gets a lot right i think just there's that one sort of grave blind spot yeah that he had um so any of my criticisms of Herbert are really on that front, not on his inability to sort of tackle those other critical issues and that are still prevalent. Yeah, no, I think I think Skip brings up a valid point in that, mm-hmm. like, he is writing to maybe address those particular things. I, it's also not something to ignore that when the book was written. So some of the older ways of writing women and female characters more as... It, to use tropey language, like more as like set dressing and more as props to prop but up see, the main. I'm not satisfied with that response because I've since read other sci-fi sure. of that time and before. And are, are you talking like Ari Lafferty and such? Ari Lafferty and other authors that I'm that are not coming to mind at the moment. Sure. but anthologies of sci-fi works that are good or better, um, and don't treat women as set dressing. Well, I mean, and that's, and we've... And there are definitely the ones that are that people like to pick at and go, like, see how terrible it was in the before times that are like, yeah, no, that's obviously bad. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, and I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to give Herbert a pass. Like, there's... Sure. Like, I just, I've admitted that it's problematic. Sure. I just, I, I think... Because these books have been so heralded so long, people do give him a pass. Sure. And I all I want to establish is, yeah, as a woman reading that book, it's super uncomfortable. Kind of hate it sometimes. Doesn't mean that the points that he's trying to make aren't valid. I just wish he could have done that <laughs> without demeaning women all the sure. time. Sure. 100%. And I think there are ways to write a culture that has those elements to that and, and create some world building around it without what felt sometimes like sympathizing with those sentiments. Sure. No, and I think you're 100% right on that. But no, Skip, thanks for bringing those points up and bringing that to our attention. We will address... Skip has another email in the hopper, but between the emails, we also got an e- uh, We also got a voicemail from a friend of the show, uh, Mike Fraley. So we're going to be listening to the voicemail in the next episode. Just FYI, too. Uh, if you guys haven't noticed, Man Persans, uh, the last week of the month... You'll notice that we dropped something uh, surprising that we have been working on for a while. So we dropped uh, the season opener for season two of uh, The Glass Dagger, which we have kind of recoined as the legacy of glass with Jeff Romo. And we are going to be posting that on the last week of the month. This week is going to be a little funky uh, because the first is going to fall within that. So it'll basically be whatever um it's the last week of the month for us on our recording schedule so it'll be three content episodes and then we're going to be dropping a uh story episode of the D actual play because we've had a lot of fun producing that we've got something like 
14 or 15 episodes banked already and we're still recording with Jeff and we're not even like halfway through a season. So <laughs> it's going to be fun. Uh, we'd love to hear what you guys think of that. If you guys are having fun with that, we're we're just doing it because we enjoy playing D&D together and it's a lot of fun to get to do. And this has been really fun from a narrative perspective too. But just wanted to give you guys the heads up on that. So basically, you'll be getting one of those a month because we got a couple of questions about the release schedule of that. So last week of the month, there there will be one episode uh, that is the next uh, edition of Legacy of Glass. So as we begin to transition to the topic of the day, Ashley, would you like to kind of tee us up for the discussion yeah sure so um just in side conversations we've been having off air as if we're a radio show quote unquote <laughs> off the pod no um <laughs> we, we let's just stick with off air it's it's, it's easier <laughs> extra popular less accurate but better um we've just i mean through these these past how many years have we been a podcast? Uh come May, five? it will be five years. Oh weird. That's weird. I don't know how to feel about that. Anyway, these past five <laughs> years that we've been doing a podcast and then beyond that as friends, all three of us have gone through some significant sort of reassessments about faith and how we express that faith and like things that we've picked up on. Um, just throughout our lives and discussing and comparing and contrasting and stuff. And something that's come up frequently has been um, creeds and, you know, churches that are confessional, churches that are creedal. What does that mean? Um, and I kind of just wanted to start by asking, you know, for you guys growing up uh, in Christian churches, do you remember what your first encounter with a creed was? Um, or what your general experiences and opinions have been with regard to the use of creeds? I am trying to think back, and I want to say, so I grew up in a Presbyterian church. I've talked about that before. Um, and I know that would have been my first point of contact with it. I think it probably wasn't until high school that I, like, developed something of a conscious awareness of it but that's also like the point at which i was coming back to the church and actually taking a conscious interest in church again that wasn't just a i'm a kid going to vbs this is great <laughs> you know um and i i'm trying to remember i'm fairly certain it was the apostles creed that we recited every week um in church so i came i became fairly familiar with that one um, and that was the one that I, I knew, you know, throughout most of my, my high school and going into college career. And then when I transitioned into the evangelical church, that's when I came across the Nicene Creed for the first time, I, I think. Um, and I think we tended to, to recite that more frequently than not. And I know um, the church that I was going out or going to when I was in seminary in Chicago um, they did a whole big thing where they did a, a like a more in depth like creed series on the Nicene Creed, um, and dug into that a little bit deeper. I think their worship team like wrote a song because they were like trying to take the Hillsong route and do their own music and all that good stuff. Um, so yeah, so that's that was where I kind of dug into the Nicene Creed, and beyond that, I can't say 
there was really much, I mean, obviously came up in seminary and we talked about it in seminary, but beyond that, I can't really think of another instance where they really came up or where they were particularly profound outside of just being, you know, a functional part of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. For me, um, I think the first one probably would have been the Apostles' Creed uh, in the Methodist Church. I think that probably would have been okay. there. Uh, but, I mean, to be perfectly honest, until we regularly started attending uh, a Episcopal church, I really hadn't run into too many of the creeds. Like, I knew the Nicene Creed from uh, just other study. Mm-hmm. And that's it would have been in college when I came in contact with them for the first time. Um, but, I mean, to be perfectly honest, in the Pentecostal tradition that I grew up in, uh, you meet interesting resistance when you start using historical prayers. At least, uh, let me just phrase it as, at least, or at least co- make the caveat that in the congregation that I grew up in, mm-hmm. you caught some friction for getting... And again, uh, sorry, there's a lot of caveats around this because I love uh, the senior pastor who was there. Uh, Jim was fantastic, and he actually... Like, he was very good. There was just other more... Uh, it, have you guys ever... Sorry, this is tangential a little bit. Have you guys ever run into, like, the factions that form inside of slightly larger churches? Like, How that, do you mean? So, like, there will be, at least in the, the tradition that I grew up, in the church that I grew up, um, there were, like, political factions inside of the church that were pushing to be more, in this case more Pentecostal and more um, moving towards like the Holy Spirit movement and moving more into like the gifts of the spirit than say hard theology. I mean, I I guess I'm familiar with people having opinions about the direction their church goes, but I can't say that I ever really seriously participated in a church where the the congregation had the hubris <laughs> to um to suggest doctrinal changes. So it was or affected bylaws. So it it never got quite to that point, but it definitely was a movement that picked up steam mm-hmm. and so just an emphasis on the gifts of the spirit and things and i recall a time in which when i was in i think i was a, a freshman or sophomore in college where we were doing a uh going through a book series on learning how to better use the gifts of the spirit and we were talking specifically about like gifts of miracles and things and they were talking supernatural because mm-hmm. I think the book was actually called the school of the supernatural. I think that's the title. Um, uh, it's super sketchy, like not particularly good theology. And I would start go leaning into hard theology and I got chastised for it because, and I actually had someone quote at me. Well, that's fine. If you want to read the old theology stuff, I just need the Bible and the Holy spirit. Sure. So I go all the way around that whole story to say if one began to study things and want to use more liturgical elements like 
creeds mm-hmm. that met friction. What would their argument be? Uh, like, why was that an attitude? Typically, and why was that reinforced? It's not that it was necessarily reinforced. It's that it just wasn't actively tamped out. Ah, okay. And that's the only knock I can say on the sure. congregation that I grew up in is there was a lot of go along to get along. And because the works of the Holy Spirit aren't necessarily, it's not a bad topic and it's not a bad thing for a congregation to be interested in learning more and digging into. However, the zeal to which one does that, that could be slightly problematic. I say all that to say, I think it also, there's a good healthy anti-Catholic strain Mm -hmm. rolling through Pentecostalism that especially if it was something that the capital C church was huge on or was big on or was like this staple tradition. There was a lot of a white middle-class punk rock attitude towards some of those things. That just tells me they don't understand punk rock. Correct. (laughs) Nor do they understand the history of the creeds and how like shade throwing they got and how, like, in reading up on some of the creeds that we were doing in, as we get ready to go into this, like, I was just reading, I'm just like, this is, like, this is some, like, hot theological goss. Like, there is, a, this is fun digging in and, and seeing yeah. some of this. I don't know. Whenever I meet resistance to any sort of written traditions... And this might be my hubris talking, but from my experience, there's always some sort of fear wrapped up or at the core of that resistance that they're afraid of like losing something or they had a really bad past experience with a church that had those sort of core Quite liturgical possibly. elements. Um, and it just makes me really sad, but I've, and not to, I'm, just, I'm diagnosing this church you are no longer a part of, but I just, I wonder <laughs> what would have happened if there had been some sort of more um, deliberate attempt at exploring those things. Um, in a, in an open environment. Yeah. And I will like to also- really get to the root of what, what that, sort of hesitancy or aggression was i'll also say like it's possible that some of that was happening in other different gatherings that i wasn't attending sure i was 19 yeah and i left the church i left the church at at 20 sure so who knows maybe i just was missing pieces but Mm -hmm. in a lot of other ways through the youth group that I came up in, I was formed pretty well. Like the formation I got was actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. And then the stuff, the additional stuff that I got from my brother and then from my own, like pretty good theological forming. But I don't know. It it would be interesting to hear um, if that exists or what that, it would be interesting to find out what, if that kind of thing would, would have happened. Well, what the congregation could look like. Yeah. Because it came, when I left, it was becoming very Supper Club E. Sure. And I know that it didn't change. And I, I won't go too deep in the woods because I know lots of things about the congregation since I've left. So yeah, I won't, and that's, I won't just, and that's not necessary. I, I guess, won't. I guess my point is like, just like they have their issues with written tradition, there are lots of churches that have a written tradition that I know for a fact could beef up their pneumatology. 
Um, and it's a shame because I feel like there's a lot lost when we don't dialogue with one another. And so I wish mm-hmm. that there were, I wish there were more courageous dialogues being had interdenominationally. Sure. For the sake of the global church. I just get, this is, yeah. I'm getting into my, um, soapbox yeah my ecumenical soapbox this is i just it just it it's disappointing to hear because it could yeah. be so much and when we choose to not be the thing that i think 100 percent, it's just frustrating yep but anyway thank you for sharing your experience yeah what Kyle. about you oh me i mean <laughs> as a as a kid we went to an an elca lutheran church so um evangelical lutheran churches of america and they use all three creed. When I say all three, I mean the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and then the Athanasian Creed. Sure. Um, I don't remember a time in, in which we used the Athanasian Creed because we only went there until I was like 13. And I can't like remember a distinct, granted, you know, up until that point, what would I have really noticed about using the creeds? Right. It would have been whatever was printed in the bulletin. And by the right. time I could read, then you know what? Easy to feel real powerful when you like theater because it's like, you've given me a script. Excellent. I will read whatever is on the page. <laughs> right. And I will, I will declare it loudly because you've given me a script. Um, but, you know, I, I do remember not really understanding as a kid the difference between a prayer and a creed. Um, but I do remember feeling comforted by the fact that it was like, yes, okay, we're all saying this together. Everyone agrees. This right. is a thing to be said. Cool. It's the same every week. Doesn't change. Right. Exactly. I don't and, feel put on the spot. Exactly. And I remember then when we had confirmation classes towards the end of my career as a Lutheran, um, that the um the curriculum for the confirmation class was just breaking down the Lord's Prayer and the Nicene Creed and mm. having to memorize both. But then like going through um not exactly line by line, but taking it in chunks to try to explain like this is why we say this. And so then later, when we stopped going to that church and started going to more non-denominational churches, it wasn't like a real conscious thought. It was just kind of, oh, you keep, you keep things real loose up in here, huh? Like, you just do whatever. There's no, huh, different things every Sunday? Is this, really? <laughs> uh, okay. Anarchy. Madness. Well, and it felt Excitement. like that to me. It felt like that to me. And it was exciting. Yeah. Because it was like, oh, you're catering to me. Neat. Right. I like this. This is getting an emotional response for me. I'm no longer tired. Um, and, and there's something to be said for that, for, for using our creative capacities as, you know, created creators to, you know, zhuzh up a service. But um, the longer I was in it, the more I started to miss the certainty of having a creed. And I didn't, I didn't have words for that until like after seminary yeah. um, when I realized, oh, I'm not good at being a Baptist. Um, and it's not because baptism, like being a Baptist failed. It's not like the Baptist church failed me. The American Baptist church failed me. It was because I felt like I was failing it. Cause I was like, I need this extra thing though. Call it a crutch, but I kind of need it. Right. So I'm gonna go over here. <laughs> so that's been my, my experience is like, oh, I didn't realize that was the thing that I was missing this whole time. Now, if we could just like combine these components, I think you could have a pretty cool church. We'll see. Right. 
Here's hoping. To be determined. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of funny. I mean, I know we've had these conversations many, many times before, but I think this particular context, listening to both of you, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that was me. And then Ashley starts talking. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was me, too. Because <laughs> um, I will say, when you're talking about the church politics thing, Alan, I know exactly what you're talking about because I didn't know it, but my first, like, dipping my toes in the water of ministry was stepping onto a powder keg of that. Um, and it, it blew up in my face hard after a couple of years, um, of working in, in my church that I had grown up in. And it, it, I mean, it ended a bad fallout. My whole family left the church because of it. Um, mm. and very similar in a lot of dimensions. I'm also not sure what the, the underlying things were, I found out about like some of it after the fact, but for the sake of not just rehashing a very similar story to Alan's story, we're not going to get into it. Um, and again, I don't even know half the details. I just know I stepped into it and I was just the, the young happy go lucky, like gung ho, super excited about doing this ministry thing. And I was all for it. And then I accidentally lit the dynamite. Didn't even know I was doing it. How would you say that you lit the dynamite for you? What is so, that? What was that action? Well, I, I'll get into some specifics. So what had happened was I, the, the youth pastor at the time, who was my first mentor, he had kind of set me in charge of running this afternoon um, Sunday discipleship class where I would just like work with some of the high schoolers and we would just like go deeper on stuff. Right. And he kind of just gave me free reign to do whatever, which was a choice in hindsight. <laughs> and I look back at some of the things like most of what I talked about, I'm like, sure. Okay. Some of the stuff I talked about, I'm like, what was I doing? I don't know. I was excited. I was just plowing forward with stuff. It's fine. Um, but basically what had happened was I started kicking around the idea with, I mean, and here's the thing. I was like 19 at the time too. And I'm working with a bunch of like 16, 17, 18 year olds who were all my friends, mm -hmm. you know, that we were all basically hanging out together. Right. So there was really no, um, hard line there. There was, there was another like adult in the room because that was, you know, obviously as far as church safety and stuff goes, um, a necessity, but she wasn't particularly like, she was just kind of there. She didn't throw in much, you know, to the conversations or anything like that. Um, didn't really add a whole lot. Most of the time she was just kind of a supervisor, if you will, or a chaperone. Um, and so I started talking with all these high schoolers and we started kicking around the idea of like, if we were to like re reinvent church from the ground up, what would that look like? Right. Cause it was just, it was just kind of that, you know, classic high school daydreamy. I'm a hyper idealistic person. So that's where my brain's going to go. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and we started talking about it and we started kind of like putting ideas together and stuff. Well, what I didn't know was that the youth pastor who had been my youth pastor when I was in middle school had actually done exactly that. He had started a church, left that church and had taken a huge chunk of the congregation with him Ooh, and left yeah. serious scars in his wake. Right. Yep. I knew nothing about that. I never knew why he left. I just knew that he left, was completely oblivious to all that. Right. And so the next thing I know, I'm just talking about this. It starts getting around to parents. Parents start freaking out. And instead of talking to me, the hammer comes down. Okay. And all of a sudden, like, I'm being, like, cross-examined. And people are, like, all sorts of agitated with me. Nobody's explaining to me why. They basically, straight up, I showed up to the church one day for youth group. And yeah. they told me, uh, I'm sorry, you can't be here. You need to leave. 
Oh, whoa. Out of the blue. Just completely out of nowhere. Yep. And then they called me in the next day, keeping in mind that I was driving like an hour from Mm -hmm. college to get down for this. And I came in the next day and they were, they basically sat me down in an office and, and made me sign a contract that said I wasn't going to tell the kids why I wasn't there the night before and that I would follow their curriculum and comply with what they wanted me to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like, it was one of those horrible moments of like, do you, do you toe the line and try to make a difference from the inside or do you just say to heck with it all? Well, I tried towing the line and I couldn't live with myself for the next week. So finally I went to the church session, which is for anyone who isn't familiar, basically the elders uh, or, you know, the governing council for the church. Mm-hmm. And I was like, look, you guys need to change things. If you keep going this way, you're going to lose your youth ministry. And keeping in mind that my mentor who was gone at this point, I had basically taken over the youth ministry. Mm-hmm. He um, had grown it from like a group of like five, six, maybe a dozen at the most when I was in youth group mm-hmm. to like 40, 50 on a regular basis Dang. every night in our church. And we were like in downtown. So we would pull in like big crowds of, of kids all the time, right? Yeah. Um, and so it was just a huge, like massively successful thing for a while there. And it had, you know, kind of started to drop off a little bit, but it was still going strong even with him gone um, when I had kind of taken over. And then, yeah, they basically, I, so I, I went to the session. I was like, nope, you guys need to change this stuff. Like if you don't, you, everybody's going to walk out the door because all of these teens are ticked off and they hate what you're doing now. And I'm just telling you now you need to change it. And oh, by the way, just so it's clear that this isn't like me trying to do things for my sake, I quit. Good luck. Mm. And I walked like, and then my whole family left the church after that. Cause we just couldn't deal with right. it. So. Man. See, it's, it's funny hearing your guys' stories for, for as much as I've dealt with, I've never dealt with something like that. Sure. Um, and I feel spared from a lot as again, as much as I have dealt with, um, in this moment, unfortunately for you, I feel very blessed by your experiences. <laughs> um, yeah. I will say, just for the benefit of, of uh, throwing this out there, being older and at least moderately wiser, I definitely can go back and say, okay, there are a number of things that I would have done differently and could have done better to handle sure. that situation better. Also, I'm not going to to paint myself as the the, like, hero perfect figure in the situation i know i screwed up a bunch of stuff that i could have done better but that said sure well right i think there are different ways to handle that kind of conflict especially for as young as you had been right. um in that moment like there hindsight's twenty twenty. we can always look back at our younger selves and go "Ooh, not your best moment friend <laughs> right. um but also there are better ways to course correct especially when someone has that youthful energy around something they're just either misdirected or they have the right idea but there's like another project you could go towards or whatever yeah right. um and so there's Which, an immaturity of two parts yeah and I, and i think speaking from from your perspective and what you were pointing out as far as dialogue ashley i think that as i came out of that situation and had the opportunity to kind of step back from it and reflect that was always the thing that I lamented the most too. I was like, why didn't somebody just come and tell me this? Like, why did you bring the hammer down on me? I was a young kid who's barely been in ministry for five minutes. You guys were like turning me loose to do stuff. And then I start going a direction you don't like. And then it, it all like 
it's the fan, right? And instead of like coming and talking me through it, you're like, yeah, again, bringing the hammer down, which for me, like, again, now being more of an adult and looking back on it, I'm like, are you kidding me? I was an 18 year old kid and you were threatened by what was happening because I was an 18 year old kid and you couldn't just say, hey, we don't really do that. This is why we don't. Mm -hmm. Here's what happened before. Right. Can we maybe reapproach this in a different way? Yeah. You know? But I, I think we're seeing that all over now. It, it, and it's always based on fear from what's happened in the past, not wanting mm-hmm. to repeat that thing, and then pride sort of mutating that fear into, oh, we're justified not only in feeling this way, but approaching this object or this group or this person to try to tamp down, but in a way that really more sort of re-justifies our feelings and sort of heightens them as opposed to actually like healthily adjusting and course correcting and yeah. discussing. Like I think I think ecumenical dialogue could be greatly helped by the phrase, I see your point. I don't like it in this moment, but I I ask for the time to reassess. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like because there are plenty of things in discourse that I've had where I'm like, I really don't like what you've just said. I can't tell you why I don't like it right now, but I'm having emotions. And I right. think I just need time and space to have those emotions, but I also needed to to express that I disagree. I'm not sure why yet, though. Right. You know? Well, that's, yeah, like, everybody needs processing time, right? right. Like, but we like to act like we don't. We've all adopted right. this, like, sort of Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> sort of, I've got a mind palace full of theology. Right. None of us are that person. <laughs> None of us can retreat and like process through something in the next five seconds and come back out with a pristine conclusion. Well, especially like as we are all lay people having these discussions, <laughs> this 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 habit to go into any sort of theological conversation and go, I have all the answers because I've experienced all the church. No, you haven't. <laughs> right. This is why it's important to be a church because that's where the discussion happens. You're, and that's you're not one the tiny only little reason. pip. One tiny little pip in a two thousand plus year history, my friend. Right. So just again, th- the hubris I tell you. <laughs> like <laughs> it hits an interesting point though, because how often and it gets into something we've we've touched on a little bit, but I think it's worth circling back to like yeah, sorry. No, 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 no. It's it, like we may not even get to what we originally were uh, were targeted for because we're already at fifty minutes. Yeah, so I'm thinking not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Kyle's got a hot date. We've got dinner to eat sometime. I got things to barbecue. It's it's it. Ooh. it you know. Uh, and you didn't uh, invite me. Yep, you're just only I'm a couple sorry, thousand we miles forgot away. To send the private jet again. But I mean, gas yeah, prices. Am I right? <laughs> you own a private jet. <laughs> You can afford it. Thanks, Disclaimer, Patreon subscribers. Disclaimer, they don't actually, though. 
<laughs> it's just a giant paper airplane that we run underneath. <laughs> I keep throwing it. It won't go far enough. Why does why does our private jet sound like NASCAR? Uh, look, it's a, it's a di- it is a discount private jet. We couldn't e- we couldn't even afford plane sounds. It just needed to be whatever we could whatever we could rip from like Sunday afternoon television. It's like changing lanes in the sky in lanes it made for itself. Suddenly a motorcycle's going by. It's like, wait, what? How is that happening in the sky? You need you need like a, a runway that's ten times as long as normal because it like revs up and then it oh, One of the things that I think digging in and starting to look at the creeds and think about more critically is one, all of the fights it, like this the there's a reason why certain books of the Bible go cyclical, mm-hmm. like repeat things over and over and over and over. And there's a reason why certain themes throughout the canon of scripture. It's almost like human beings do this again and again and again and again. Oh, you beat me to it. I was just going to sneak in. There's nothing new under the sun in there. Dang it, it Alan. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, Mind Palace for the win. Uh, (laughs) But one, as we, as a capital C church, deal with change. (laughs) I don't know why I thought for a second you were going to say, as a capital C capitalist. (laughs) (laughs) As the capital C church. I only buy my Bibles from Bible Core. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Is Bible Core like the biblical version of Peace Core? <laughs> no, no, it's so much worse. Like, like Bible Corporation. Correct. Oh, <laughs> oof. Nope. Hard nope. pass. Thank you. Come again. Except don't go die in a fire. Uh. Anyway. Uh. Capital C Church. As we begin to deal with new change and, well, quote unquote, new change, as we encounter things, it's really important to look back at our own church history because chances are, if even in our internet educated, all the information at our fingertips, uh, like brains, chances are the thought that you're having isn't new or revolutionary. It's something that's been thought before. And it's church history is pretty dang good. Like it's pretty well documented. One of the things that was in the one that I was kind of digging in that digging into Trinitarian stuff and like the Godhead and uh, hypostatic union type things. It sounds really familiar to a lot of discussion that has been had over the last 20 years again. And it was funny because until I was digging into it, I didn't know that it had happened there. And I was just like, oh, right. This is why we read history. This is why we talk to each other about things and we get alternating viewpoints and not just react to the first thing that we hear and go, that doesn't align with my checkboxes. Like that is outside of the things that I think and therefore reject said idea that is how we get into the polemic society that we've developed because you hear something 
that doesn't that you don't agree with or that makes you uncomfortable and then it gets put into the category of dislike or if something is said that you agree with regardless of however uh problematic the statement is or the figure in wh- whom with whom is speaking it you're like well that aligns to my core value which means i have to align with that this is how we get into a very very messy situation mm-hmm. and how nothing actually can happen and especially when it comes to the theological work and the spiritual work of our faith, if you cannot divorce yourself from, okay, I think this way, and this person thinks this way, if you can't divorce yourself from a theological figure, a phrase I've always said is like, if you agree 100% with a theologian, like 100%, you're doing it wrong. Because there will always be something that you probably disagree with or at least have find fault with. Like, I enjoy reading the theology of John Calvin. That does not mean that everything John Calvin did was good or right or moral or just or upright. Well, and I don't even think he would claim that. No. Same with Luther. Absolutely. But if you can't acknowledge those things, if you only go, well, they produced this. Yeah, but then you have Yoder, who produced The Politics of Jesus and some other works, and was a terrible human being abusing his research assistants and the people who worked in his office. Right. Like, you can find value or good teaching in a thing, and the person be a dumpster fire. And I think that as we dig into creeds and we come and we discuss what has been thought and brought together throughout the history of our faith as this is a this is a line in the sand like this isn't just a thing we read every week at least in the episcopal tradition like the nicene creed where we'll get to eventually Mm -hmm. it's not just a thing that we read every week if you go line by line which little secret we're going to it's going to be fun um every single statement is a theological statement that I mean, it's a make or break. Like, if you don't agree with it, you're in the wrong faith tradition. I'm sorry. It's one of those where this is the line you do not cross. End of story. Like, you can you can chew on it and try to sort through some of them, but it's pretty much the list of no, this is it, fam. Like this, this. Well, it's not what I think. What you're trying to say is it's not just a thing we recite every Sunday. It's a profession of faith. Like these were things. This was a tool used to yes. prepare people for baptism, which was the induction into the church. So they weren't going to just be like, yeah, join the club. It's whatever. It's like, this is what you're committing to saying that you believe. Like, this is your new faith. Yes. So until you can confidently confess these things, maybe do some more soul searching. Yeah. And they were so important that when you had these ecumenical councils, if someone didn't agree with what was being put in the creed and they were, you know, dubbed a heretic or they left the council, what have you, (laughs) it was such a hot thing that they would do what people do now, which is they would leave and go create their own sect and try to create their own (laughs) creed, which is what's so fascinating. Yes. Because people try to drudge up those old creeds. It's like, well, no, those weren't popular for a reason. Like those only had their staying power in that arena or for that long because they really didn't hold water a lot of the time. There might be some interesting things to look back on, 
But that's that's why these other creeds are really interesting because they were argued about for years. Right. And ultimately were either had counter creeds written that were specifically designed about like, okay, this is in support of the Nicene Creed. But dear God, if we're going to have to keep going around the horn on this, here's another one that, yes, we all agree on this statement. Put it out. It's like it, it was the biblical equi- or it was the like old world equivalent of issuing a new press release. Like, shut up already. Mm-hmm. Creed. Well, and <laughs> and the other exciting thing is there are new creeds being written all the time yeah. to help communicate the gospel to other communities and other cultures. So it's not like it's just like these are the three creeds and if you don't adopt these three creeds, you can't be a Christian. It's like, no, these can be translated or assessed, rebirthed in other communities in other ways. Like I can talk about the um, Messiah Creed another time, but it's beautiful. And I would I would very happily say that in any church. Um, so there's still ways to, I, for those people that have like the itch to reinvent all the time, there are ways to do that and it not be like, mm, heresy all the time, all the time right. heresy. Well, and at the end of the day, that's the other huge purpose of the creeds, right? Is we needed a baseline. Like the church historically needed to get together and be like, what the heck do we actually think here? Like, what do, what do we actually believe? Because there are like thousands of us spreading throughout this, you know, this region of the world post Christ. Mm-hmm. What, what do we act like? He said all these things. We have these gospels. We've heard from his apostles, mm-hmm. but it's, it's like the playing telephone thing, right? Like it, it starts with the apostles and then, those people tell other people and then those people tell other people. And now that group over there has heard something that sounds just completely and utterly different from this group over here. So you come to the end of the day and, and, you know, I think that's something to keep in mind as we're talking about early church heresies, which I will say there, there are points against them for then just deciding, well, screw the councils. I'm going to go do my own thing and still be wrong, you know, but like there was going to have to be some tripping up along the way, right? We, they were never just going to come together and be like, okay, A, B, C, D, we all agree? Yep, we're good. Great. Everybody go home now, right? right. Like that's never the way this was going to work. Right. And so having the space to do the dialogue, to do the work, to hash this stuff out, um, where you have all of these these big theologians of the time, these these people who were doing that work all coming together, smashing their work together and being like, okay, what works, what doesn't, what is what is it that we actually agree on, you know? So I think it's important to keep in mind, like, yeah, the, the creeds are, are here to establish a baseline for the church that mm-hmm. told the church, this is what we have to believe. Just like you were, you were talking about, Alan, that this is like, this is the do or die. You have to have these things. But I also like to give at least just a little bit of leeway to the to the early heretics in terms of like, yeah, somebody was going to screw it up, right? Like somebody was going to be oh. wrong. Fault yeah. on them for not then, you know, reassessing and maybe coming back into the, the communion after realizing that they were wrong and then deciding to go do their own thing. But somebody was always going to be wrong. Right. Well, and the stakes are so high, too, because they're trying yeah. to establish validity and, and clout. For a religion that is so brand new, um, on on evidence that 
really, I mean, they've they've got all these documents, but then how to like convince anybody of anything they're saying and to get organized right. like you've been bringing up, which is why I yeah. find it so funny when you read about um, other missions in other countries at that time where they're like receiving all these pagan converts and they're like, oh, shoot, now our church is outnumbered. Oops, all pagans. I don't know. <laughs> how do we like... How do we form them? Like we need some sort of right. document or or something to like make sure that they know what they're committing to, which is right. really like why it gets so personal for a lot of these early theologians and early church leaders is because like the thing that they're they're sorting out, sometimes they're having to look back on the creed that was used for their own baptism and go, oh, you want me to use this other creed for this church, but I used right. this one. And that's the one that I like hold dearly. Is there a way I can like merge the two? And so it's not like it's just this like. Or does that make my baptism invalid? Right. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And and so it's not this like cold calculating group of men that are just like, how do we get people to conform? Which I feel is like how the councils are frequently referred to as outside of. outside of the classroom is like, oh, the, the creeds sure. and the councils, bunch of dudes, am I right? No, they're like, this is something <laughs> they really care about. And they're not like just caring about it because it gives them power. They care about it because it's it's life, it's literally life or death. Right. Well, in another dimension, just briefly to put in here, is also recognizing that th- there was this sort of, and, and I hate, I want to be really careful about language here, so I, sure. I'm not, the language that I'm using is not the precision that I would prefer, but I don't have more precise language, but the sort of transmutation of Judaism into mm. Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Where like there is an existing Jewish faith, right? Yeah. Jesus was Jewish. And then to see that shift. And when you look from a cultural perspective and a historical sp- perspective on what the Israelites had gone through, right? Like mm-hmm. coming into the, the life of Jesus, like it's just been like exile destruction of Jerusalem. Everything is awful, right? Like all the foundations of our faith have been completely and utterly destroyed. And now you have this sort of quote unquote new faith that's coming in and trying to basically like completely rewrite the whole thing and just say, nope, all of that. Like we had this conversation in one of my um, classes in seminary um, of whether or not Christianity superseded Judaism, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And and that that turned into a whole big thing, and and it, the whole conversation just ticked me off because I'm like I hate, I hate framing it in that way. I right. hate framing it in that way because it automatically means something is invalidated, right? Which is I think the problem with this whole conversation is we're we're taking the wrong tact, right? Um, but I can imagine for for people who had grown up in this Jewish faith who had been a part of the nation of Israel, who had lived through these calamities that, that the Israelites had gone through, some of them would have been threatened by this, right? Yeah, and, and to, understandably to, and rightfully so. Exactly. You know, And so there was so much going on at this time. There were so many different things that were all happening, and that's why the councils were so important, because they needed to come together and, and like actually hash this out, right? Like They needed to formally sit down and be like, okay... We need to just pile all the mess on the table, trim it down, and figure out what the heck's underneath all of this. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty good kind of baseline entryway to um, our personal experiences with creeds. And I think 
we'll probably leave it there for this week and we'll we'll circle back after uh episode two of Legacy of Glass. And you give them a palate cleanser before they rage at us. <laughs> <laughs> Minmaxpod at gmail.com, minmaxpod on the socials, except Reddit or slash you slash minmaxpodcast, 773-789-9369. It's a voicemail number for voicemails, three minutes or less. Anything longer than that, you can send the voicemail uh, audio file over to the email, uh, just like a uh, friend of the show Mike did last week. We're going to be doing that soon. I'm an Alan H. Myers on Twitter. Ashley's at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K. Kyle's at Stainbrook Kyle. And until next week, see you guys later.